The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Even though the word karma is Sanskrit and is associated with Eastern religions, it refers to the law of cause and effect. Karma is not blind destiny or divine judgment, but is the principle which describes the natural reverberation that emerges from every action whether that action is physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual. All suffering, all stress, anxiety, discontentment are not punishments from a tyrant God, nor are they normal or mere coincidence. When we truly understand the law of action and consequence, we can see that our life today is a result of our moment-to-moment -moment ignorance of the effects of our actions. We create our own suffering, our own discontentment, our own stress. Therefore, we can create our own happiness instead, if we know how. No matter what religion or background we come from, through conscious or mindful action, from moment to moment, we can originate a new set of causes, which in turn will generate a new set of results. This is how we can revolutionize our life. This is the only true power to change our lives to change the world. The power has always been, is now, and always will be in our hands. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. A lot of sinners here tonight. We want to get right with the Lord. When you do the real work of meditation, as we train in Zen here at Jizoan, Part of that work involves becoming familiar with what Buddhism refers to as the true nature of the universe. It involves becoming familiar, for example, with this very present moment, this here, this now. And after years and years of deep samadhi meditation, the meditation of the Buddha, one of the things you eventually begin to observe is that the present moment, every present moment of our lives, is filled with the past. And the past, whether we 
are aware of it or not, and we're going to talk about the essential piece of awareness of this fact, the past is always informing the present. That is to say, at any given moment, when I stop to ponder how I feel, that feeling or set of feelings is made up of a very little piece of what is going on right now and a huge chunk of the past. In Buddhism, we say that the cause of suffering is ego delusion, which takes on many different definitions and many different meanings. And one of those definitions or meanings has to be what the Buddha called in the Second Noble Truth, ignorance of how the mind is working from moment to moment. The mind is always, right now, as you listen to me, comparing what it is observing in this present moment to a set of data or information. And that data or information exists in one time frame or domain. And that is the time frame or domain we call the past. Right now you are listening to me and comparing what you are listening and not just what you are hearing me say, but the sounds in the room, the feelings on your body, including your body's temperature, the smells, the aromas, the tastes, the mental formations, perhaps some memories of the past are showing up, perhaps you're thinking about what you're going to do after you leave here tonight, and you're forming a kind of visual idea of that. All of that information is regularly and consistently recorded by mind as a kind of tape or recording of the present moment. If we were able to take that tape, and we are in meditation, and look at the sequential moment, tape after tape after tape of the here and now, we would find that 90 some percent of it is really information from the past. The past literally informs not only what I experience here and now, what I am experiencing at this very moment, but literally predetermines for me what I am permitted to experience. What I am permitted to experience. So often, very much our account of what just happened a moment ago, especially in the training we call Zen, we understand to not rely on that account. Because the count is regularly and always consistently and inaccurately being informed or retranslated by our attachment to the past. <clears throat> like so many other teachings that come from the East, the teaching of karma has been so often almost at the level of ridiculous uh, taught in the West or understood in the West. As the writer's words explain to us, if we are ever to understand karma, we need to begin at a very important place for Westerners, because like myself, I was not born Buddhist, I was born and raised Roman Catholic. And when we take a look at the significant difference between theology of faith-based traditions and the wisdom tradition in Buddhism, which has no 
particular religious dogma or doctrine, there is a clear and very profound distinction between the approaches to understanding my life and resolving the discontentment. So for example, we Buddhists drop all notions of good and bad, right and wrong, in dealing with resolving our own personal discontentment, dissatisfaction, and crises in the world. Why? Because just the facts really make the difference. The law of karma is not only a Buddhist teaching and found in the Buddha Dharma and in other ancient Eastern traditions of the past, such as Hinduism and so forth, but we find that very same law, which today, in the 21st century, science is regularly comparing to the Buddha Dharma teachings, the law of karma is a paradigm or a formula that we hold to be the code, if you will, like in the matrix, the code that causes or at least literally brings about the effects in the universe. The law of karma, or the word karma itself, is an ancient Sanskrit term that means action. So when we talk about karma, we need to talk about karma. That is to say, we need to understand that what we are talking about, as the writer said, is not some divine power that literally predetermines for us our life now or in the future. In fact, the Buddha regularly emphasized that we hold the power that I alone for my life and you alone for your life hold the power of changing your karma at any moment. When we understand this profound law of the universe, this law of cause and effect, it simply means that every thought I cling to, every word I speak, every action I commit is like a conscious seed. And the Buddha said that seed is being planted regularly through my thoughts, through my words, and through my actions in this consciousness we call the universe. And that this consciousness we call universe is non-discriminating, that is to say, whatever seed I plant will become fertile in that consciousness and ultimately fruitful. Every thought, every word, and every action that I use, and I will talk about the quality of those thoughts, those words and actions in a moment, is a seed we plant in our lives in the consciousness of the universe, and that seed must and will come to fruition. So when people would approach the Buddha and ask such questions as, why is my life the way it is today? He would refer them to their thoughts and the words and the actions and the decisions and the commitments they've made in the past. And when they would ask him, what can I expect for my life in the future? And he never charged a penny for this. He would say, look at how you're thinking now. Look at how you're behaving now. And that is your future. Every thought, every word, and every action is a seed of consciousness. And we are seeding the consciousness we call the universe 
which, from which all dharma manifests itself from moment to moment. But we need to clarify this even more. If the Buddha had meant any thought, any word, or any action, we'd be spending lifetimes after lifetimes after lifetimes in every moment of our lives trying to clean up our mess, and nothing more, and nothing would ever get cleaned up. So when we again look closer at the law of cause and effect, as an essential tool for navigating through life, we need to further clarify that the power behind those actions exists in our intention. In the Buddhist tradition, karma refers to action driven by intention, which leads to future consequences. The word karma derives from the verbal root kya, which means do, make, perform, or accomplish. Those intentions are considered to be the determining factor in the kind of rebirth in samsara, and this word samsara means in English suffering. The cycle of rebirth, the cycle of cause and effect. The concepts of karma explain how our intentional actions keep us tied to rebirth or constant dissatisfaction, constant stress and anxiety, constant discontent about our life, even when we find that life is also filled with moments of joy and pleasure and contentment. But like a cycle, like the wheel of samsara as it is referred to in Buddhism, the wheel is constantly turning. The wheel of consciousness is constantly turning. And even though we find sporadic moments of joy and contentment, we all know that what is also there is our suffering and discontentment. And both the joy and the suffering that we experience at any given moment is a function of our intention in life. Karma is fueled by our intention. So the words we speak, the thoughts we think, the actions we commit, what is vital and what is often referred to in the 21st century ever since John Kabat-Zinn made the pile of money on Zen, as mindfulness is the practice of training ourselves to be mindful of our intention for whatever it is we are committing to. Our intention literally shapes and forms the quality of that fertilization and eventual fruition of our actions. Karma is Sanskrit term, literally means action or doing. So for everything that I do, every moment, whatever it is I am committing to, and per my intention of that commitment, there is an effect. For every cause, there is an effect. And once the effect, the effect becomes or comes to full fruition, it becomes a cause, causing additional effects. And thus we have the wheel of samsara. We have the turning of the rebirth of life and death, birth and death, suffering and happiness, and so forth. In Buddhist tradition, karma refers to action driven by intention, which leads to future consequences. 
The word karma means to do, to make, to perform, or to accomplish. Our intentions are considered to be the determining factor. The concepts of karma explain how our intentional actions keep us stuck in our discontentment or dissatisfaction. Whereas the Buddhist path, as exemplified in the Eightfold Noble Path, shows us the way for cessation from discontentment and dissatisfaction. When we talk about birth and rebirth, according to the teachings of the Buddha Dharma, again, our Western approach and our Western understanding of such words as birth and death limit us and leave us with a kind of half understanding, certainly not complete. For example, we often think of death as a mortal occurrence, just as we think of birth as a mortal occurrence, something of the body. But the Buddha taught that you and I die and are reborn in the course of the day thousands of times. Modern psychology is just recently beginning to take a look at how a person is born and reborn thousands of times in the course of the day. In order to fully understand that concept, we need to think a bit about the Buddhist teaching that who I am at any given moment until the moment of enlightenment, that is the moment I realize my true nature and the true nature of the universe, is oftentimes an imposter, a kind of person that I became. So I often say to my students, there are no possibilities for change in your life until you begin to distinguish between what you brought with you and what you've picked up along the way. And in the course of the day, and sometimes you feel it, whether you're aware of that experience as a consequence of this or not, and perhaps there have been moments you have been aware of it. Those times when you say to yourself or someone else, I feel as if this isn't my life. I feel so disconnected from life. And the probability is, is that that experience is accurately describing what I'm talking about. We constantly are surrendering ourselves to be someone and something else from moment to moment. When we take a look at that behavior and what is driving it, what is always driving it is the same thing, fear. And when we live a fear-driven life, this is what Buddhists mean when we talk about being attached to the wheel of samsara, being stuck on the wheel of birth and rebirth. Fear represents death. Fear is the cause of our suffering. And the cause of our fear is ego delusion. And ego delusion is ignorance of who we truly are. And we find ourselves going through our life, even though discontent or dissatisfied so many times, taking on roles and personas and identities which have absolutely nothing to do with who we truly are. <coughs> and when you take a look at the Buddhist prescription for cessation from that, the Eightfold Noble Path, the first of that path begins with cultivating the ground for right perspective, right view, or right understanding. The concepts of karma explain how our intentional actions 
keep us tied to rebirth in samsara. Whereas the Buddhist path, as exemplified in the Eightfold Noble Path, shows us the way out. The dictionary defines intention as done with intention or on purpose, done with a clear intention for a clear specific result. So when we talk about thoughts, intentional thoughts, intentional actions, we are talking about those actions in which we clearly desired a specific result, a specific effect. Intention is defined as an act or instance of determining mentally upon some action or result, the end or object intended or purpose. So it's not like everything that comes through, our, every thought that travels through our mind at any given moment is a seed being planted in the world. It is those thoughts often we find as, if you will, the base of our thinking. I want you to hear what I just said. The thoughts that function as the base of our thinking. For example, am I always negative about life? Am I always complaining about the quality of my life? Am I always pursuing more, better or different? Do I sit around and I think about how much I don't have and I wish I had more, I wish I had better, I wish I had different? This kind of dwelling type thinking this kind of recurring dissatisfaction is what we mean by intentional thought. Second, is my speech, what is the quality of that? Do I talk from a positive place, an optimistic place? Do I use words that encourage and heal and nurture and cultivate the ground for a right intention? We'll talk about right intention in a moment. And last but not least, do my actions, and my actions include the things I commit to, the stuff that I, you know, get up in the morning and say, I can't wait to do this, and I do it, that, every, that is what I'm committed to. That is what, you know, it's all about, you know, if I do this, I'm going to get some real joy out of it. So I find myself, you know, missing it when I'm not doing it to the degree, to the degree, again, missing it when you're not doing it is not the issue. When it goes to the degree where I find myself that I can't be happy unless I'm doing that, or I'm miserable because I didn't get to go do that today, these are the intentional actions as well that function as seeds. Uh, I heard someone once describe it this way. If you sit around, because the universe, because this consciousness we call mind or universe is non-discriminating and fertile, if we sit around thinking about what we lack all the time, the universe says, well, then apparently you want more of that. And we find ourselves continually lacking no matter what. If we sit around thinking that the world, and there's a lot of evidence for that uh, right now going on, if you take a look at the world, what I'm about to tell you, if we sit around thinking that the world is filled of, with nothing but liars and greed and haters, we get a lot of that. So if you want to know why, what's going on in Washington, I'm being nice, is going on, it's because perhaps there's a whole lot of us thinking that way. Intentions is defined by the dictionary again as purpose or attitude toward the effect of one's actions or conduct. 
Now, in a little bit, I'm going to talk about what Buddhism calls right intention. By right intention, we mean the, if you will, the ground or the context, the contextual thought, words, and actions that allow for the stuff we want to show up in life. And I'll talk about that in a moment. Actions, then, must be intentional if they are to generate karmic fruits. The same is true about thoughts and words. It is the psychological impulse behind an action that is karma. It is the impulse behind my thoughts, the impulse behind my words, the impulse behind my actions that determine its karmic energy, its karmic effect. So for example, if my thoughts, again, are exclusively and almost all the time about me, 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 and you know my wanting for myself, my own happiness, and so forth, this is a form of greed. And the karmic intention of greed, the Buddha said, greed, anger, or resentment, and folly are the three poisons of life. They poison our life. And when we think of poison, again, we not only think of how poison kills life, but how our bodies and how our life feels like it's always in a, you know, in a, uh, a sludging along, dragging type experience. The Buddha defined karma as intention. Whether the intention manifested itself physically, vocal, or mental form, it was the intention alone which had a moral character which produced what we often refer to as a good day or a bad day and so forth. The whole notion of good and bad. So, at every moment, my intention, whether I'm aware of it or not, and the need to be aware of it is essential. Is literally creating the energy in the universe that literally manifests itself in one form or another whether that form be psychological, whether that form be physical, it is manifesting emotionally as well, one way or another, according to my intention. So one of the big questions the teacher is always looking for an answer in the student is, what is your intention? What is your intention for your life? And when I ask you, what is your intention for your life, from the Buddhist position, it is also the same question, what is your intention for the world? Fundamental to all Buddhist teachings is that in addition to the law which governs the universe of cause and effect, is a fundamental quality of the universe, or at least its dharma, those physical manifestations. And that is, everything is interconnected and everything is interdependent. Both in quantum physics and in Buddhism, we find this to be true. We find that we cannot talk about my life apart from talking about the world. We cannot have an intention for my life unless that intention is shared in the world. 
when my intention is only about my own personal fulfillment, once again, we call that the intention greed. And when my intention is greedy, there will be suffering. So in Zen, we have the practice, if you ever listen to the ritual of what we call opening the Dharma, when I incense the altar and offer our evening or morning prayer, we say, by the power and the truth of our efforts, may all beings everywhere be free of sorrow and suffering and its causes. And that line points to another fundamental part of the paradigm. In our culture, we know a lot about the content of our lives. In fact, I talked about this on Wednesday evening. The way most of us usually do it, and that is the way most of us try to better our lives, is by moving the content in our life around. Going after more, going after better, going after something different than we already have. Moving the content constantly. In the West, we are obsessed with the myth, at best, lie at worst, that the source of our happiness is in the content of our life. So we look for how much money we have. We look for how many cars we have. We look for you know, our successes as being the source for our happiness. And when you take a look at that mindset, the mind and its intention is always focused on the future is always focused on when I get this content in my life, then I will be happy. So once again, if you've been listening to the anatomy of the paradigm of karma, when I'm constantly focused on the future and not on the here and now and seeing what is really so right now, then the universe hears that I have no interest in the here and now. You see? And like the little girl says, tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. But the problem is, you're always a day away. You're always a day away. The pursuit of happiness in our country is killing us. It's killing the moment. And any possibility for contentment here and now because the pursuit is always operating from an intention that tomorrow, when this happens, then I'll be happy. And that the possibility of happiness and contentment here and now is at best limited, at worst, not possible at all. So when we talk about the means or skillful means, as the Buddha often referred to it, of navigating our lives through life, we must begin by examining the question, what is my intention? My intention at any given moment is literally the cause of the results, the cause of the effects in my life. What is my intention? Now the Buddha talked about right intention, just as he talked about right understanding, right view. When we use such terms in Buddhism as right or wrong, we don't have a kind of value or quality attached to those words. Right means, again, the laws of the universe are the laws of the universe. They are never 
changing laws. Just as gravity is always going to function in the same way in any given moment and in any part of the universe, the laws of the universe literally govern how the universe operates. It is the code of the universe. And that code is every effect in my life, the content of my life, has a cause. Discover the cause, understand the cause, deal with the cause, and the content will change. And there are right intentions or right causes, and there are wrong intentions or wrong causes. And by, again, right we mean right is the stuff that works. Wrong is the stuff that doesn't work. And there is a legal term or definition for the word insanity. And insanity, as you know, means continually applying wrong intention to my life, expecting this time it, the result will be different when every single time the result is the same. So again, as I said a moment ago in the West, the way we normally handle that you know, problematic issue of life is that we start to shift around the content of our life. But the content of our life is interconnected and interdependent of its cause. If we never discover and deal with the cause of our dissatisfaction, we can move the content around all we want. And the stuff that we would prefer not having in our life will never go away. We must get to the root cause of suffering. And again, from the Buddhist perspective, the root cause of all suffering is ego delusion. And the root cause of ego delusion has to do with what is called in the Eightfold Noble Path, the prescription for cessation from suffering, right understanding or wrong understanding, right point of view or wrong point of view. So if you were to ask me right now, okay, how do I make this work? We begin by owning the laws of the universe. We can't deny them. We can't go on through life as if they don't exist. We can, but nothing will ever change. Change begins the moment I own the laws which not only govern the universe, but govern my life. Because as Einstein said, right view, Einstein would say, Right view, as the Buddha talks about it, begins with recognizing that what you and I are are not these increments of personalities, personas, <coughs> and pursuits, and so forth, but what you and I are, after all of that drops away, after we strip all that stuff away from ourselves, what is left with is what was there from the beginning. And what was there from the beginning, he said, you and I are parts of a whole called by us universe. And in order to understand how to function in that universe as a part of that universe, we need to understand its laws and we need to navigate our life according to those laws. And central to those laws is every effect has a cause and every cause committed by us through our words, our thoughts, or our actions, produces a specific effect. Know the causes, you can know the effects.
Any questions? So you need to ask yourself this question. And it's not important for me to know the answer. It's important for me to know my answer. So it's important for you to know the answer for yourself. And if you've never asked yourself before this question, then you need to see how long you've been living your life, kind of like a friend of mine once said, a billiard ball on a billiard table, bouncing off the sides here and there, thinking we're going somewhere, and waking up or at least taking a moment to consider when we find ourselves dropped in the hole, they say. What is your intention in your life? What is the core foundation for your life? Now, another way that I often talk about this is where are you coming from in any given moment? And what are you bringing to that moment from that place you come from? So a moment ago, I talked about how most of us live from and operate from a place of fear. And when we live from and operate from a place of fear, or a fear-driven life, from every given moment, we are planting the causes, or manifesting the causes, for the effects. So it's kind of like the cat that we just got, the kitten, who we often observe chasing its tail in the house. It's constantly chasing its tail, like they say a dog chases its tail, believing that there's something at the other end of that, and that something is separate and apart from itself. When I go through my life without any clear awareness of what my intention is for myself, then I'm kind of like, again, the cat or dog chasing its tail, and that is, at least, at worst, I'm like a small child with an armed, you know, with a fully loaded weapon in my hand, go running around playing. And that is how it feels like for so many people. So the question is, what is your intention? You need to know your intention. You need to know what is, again, literally driving us from day to day. What is the ground of your existence? What is your purpose in life? Synonymous to the definition for the word intention is this term purpose. You hear a lot these days, and you've, had, you've heard a lot in the last 30 years from various different sources, about living a purposeful life. Living a purposeful life is operating from moment to moment in your daily life with a clear purpose in your life. So that everything I do, my thinking, my speaking, my communication, back and forth with other beings, my actions, are grounded in that purpose, that purpose. When I know my intention, you need to hear this, because everybody in this room, I'm convinced, works hard at living the best they possibly can. And that's very noble. The problem is, at the end of the day, and that's why you don't come here and regularly meditate with me at night, or get up early to do, because you don't have the energy and the reason why you don't have the energy is you're working too hard. And I don't mean at your jobs. 
And by working too hard, I mean, when you know your purpose in life, and you practice what, you know, this integrity for your life, when you have integrity of purpose, everything naturally flows from that. You don't have to be working so hard, for example, the content. All effects flow from their causes. Cause is intention. Cause is purpose. When you know your purpose in life, you are committed to always operating from that place. And when you always operate from a purposeful life, an intentional life, the results are all already, if you will, guaranteed. Already guaranteed. But most of us have no clue when I ask that question. Perhaps you are sitting there thinking, yeah, he's right, I don't know what my purpose is in life. And if you don't know what your real purpose is in life, you at least need to know what you've been doing so far. Okay? You at least need to know what's, what has that all been about for you? You see? All of that worrying and running to and from, all of that pursuing of success, all of that fear of failure, what is that all about for you? And if you don't understand what that's all about for you, how do you expect to fix that? You see? When we don't know what is really driving us, it's like being in this room. If, the, if, if you're consciously aware of your position in this room right now, and suddenly the lights were to go out, the chances are you would know how to get yourself out of this room safely because you know where you are in relationship to the door. And you would know how to get out. But if you don't know where you are, the probability is you will panic and find yourself injured in the process of trying to get yourself out of the world. Knowing my intention, knowing my purpose, is essential in any spiritual practice and is absolutely essential for navigating through life. I will suggest to you right now that the world is in the state that it is in that our country is in the state that it is in because there is no clear intention and purpose. And we witness it every time these guys and others get on the stage and do their speeches. One moment they're this way, next moment they're that way. And we talk about how we can't trust them. And you're right. Because a life without a clear intention or purpose is a life that is unable to navigate itself through the third quality of the myriad of forms in the universe. And that is, everything is of the nature of impermanence. When you know your purpose in life, the whole universe can change, and you will get to your destination. Because it's like having a clear path, and how much the topography might change. Any questions? So I invite you right now to ask yourself the question. What is your purpose in life? What is your intention? Whatever that is, literally <coughs> determines for us the possibilities. The possibilities. And then you need to ask the question, 
what is the intention behind that? What is the driving force behind that? And a moment ago, you heard me talk about when what is driving us is fear, the results are always the same. Suffering. <coughs> a fear-driven life results regularly and consistently in suffering, no matter how driven that life may be. It's like working your butt off all day, and the only results you get is that you get to go to bed to get up and work your butt off again all day tomorrow. You see? And you do that for the rest of your life. Sound familiar? The Buddha wanted to know how to live skillfully. So what are we talking about? We are talking about living skillfully or practicing skillful means which have been well honed and proven to work for centuries. We create karmic results in three different ways. Through actions that are positive or negative or neutral. When we feel kindness and love and with this attitude do good things which are beneficial to both ourselves and others, we call this positive action. When we commit harmful deeds out of equally harmful intentions, we call this negative action. And finally, when our motivation is indifferent, we're just doing it for the sake of doing it, and our deeds are neither harmful or beneficial, we call this neutral action. The results we experience will accord with the quality of our actions. So again, synonymous with what I said earlier, how we are obsessed with the content of our life, that obsession, again, leaves us nothing, with, uh, nothing more than stuff. When we are focused on the quality of our lives, the quality of our actions, the quality of our behavior, then it doesn't matter what stuff we are left with because whatever we are left with possesses a quality that always fulfills and satisfies. In Japanese Zen, particularly, there is this emphasis on simplicity. Senriku, the father of the Japanese tea ceremony, wrote, all can find peace. And his use of the word peace, he meant everything we are looking for, the contentment, the satisfaction, the fulfillment. He said all can find peace in a bowl of tea when they know how to prepare a bowl of tea and to offer it to another. The simple act of preparing a bowl of tea, he said, and offering it to another, enjoying it yourself, all he said we're looking for can be found in that simple behavior when as is the emphasis in training in Chanoyu, the Japanese tea ceremony, the emphasis or focus or purpose of my actions is about the quality of those actions. So again, when you go to a traditional <coughs> Japanese home, you don't see the ornaments you see in, the, in most American homes, crowded with so many different type of items. 
And yet there is a distinct beauty, a distinct satisfaction in that room's simplicity. In that room's simplicity. So when we talk about living simply, it's not just the action of removing content from your life. It's the action of learning how to be content with the littlest amount, the simplest amount. So in order to fully understand that and train in that, we need to shift our focus again from the content of our lives to the quality or context of our life, the quality of our life. It's not enough to say, I love you. It's how you say it that makes the difference. It's not enough to say, I want you to be happy. It's how you say it that makes the difference. And as Riku said, even in the preparation, the simple act of preparing a bowl of tea and knowing how to do that in a way that says gratitude, that says the best for yourself and others, one can find everything they're looking for. So, it is the quality of my behavior that matters. And most of us, throughout the course of our day, not only haven't a clue about living with quality, that bringing that sense of excellence to each of our actions, but we take it for granted. We go through life just shooting off words, shooting off actions, and as I talked about it on Wednesday night, most of us are like firemen, that our lives are nothing more than putting out the fires from those words and actions, from which was caused by those words and those actions. Karma describes how our actions evolve into experience internally and externally. Each action is a seed which grows or evolves into our experience of the world. Every action either starts a new growth process or reinforces an old one. A new growth process or reinforces an old one. So I started out by pointing out that the Buddhist understanding of karma is that it is not this kind of fixed predestination for our life that cannot be changed. The Buddha said that we can change our karma at any time. We change our future. There's really nothing we can do about the past and its effect. But we can change our future at any given moment by changing the quality of our thinking the quality of our speech, and the quality of our behavior. And changing our intention and purpose from what might be wrong intention or wrong purpose to right intention or right purpose. For example, perhaps my intention, when I really examine it, no matter how difficult it can be to see for myself, or at least see what I do see, and embrace that as a place to start, is that my intention is really very selfish, really very greedy, and so forth. By changing that intention to be one of love and kindness and compassion, both for myself and others, by, as Einstein said, when Einstein talked again about this, he began by saying that each of us are part of a whole called by us universe. And that even though we experience ourselves 
as separate from all the other parts in the universe, that is a form of ego delusion. At the end of that very famous quote by Einstein, he gives the formula for changing that all around. And part of that formula is by widening the circle of our compassion to be all-inclusive and not just those few nearest to us, by wishing and hoping that the whole world will be free of sorrow and suffering and its causes. Yes, even Republicans. <laughs> that the whole world can be free of sorrow and suffering and its causes. In the Tibetan tradition, a karmic action grows into four results. The result of full ripening, the result from what happened, the result from what acted, and the environmental result. So the effects of our karmic thinking, speaking, and behavior ripples out to affect the entire world. So Pema Chodron, in one of her famous books, talks about changing the world right where you are. That if you want peace on Earth, it must begin with you. Now, some people hear that and read that as another Buddhist teaching. But think about it for a moment. What if everybody on the planet literally began really working on their own peace of mind and body and realized it? The whole world would change because everybody on the planet makes up the whole world. So, as I often counsel people in re about relationships and about careers, I remind them, you cannot give what you do not have. You must begin with having loving, kind, compassionate thoughts, words, and actions towards yourself. And then extend that outward towards others. That's how we change the karmic quality that is regularly continuing to, again, reinforce. Remember what um, the um, Rinpoche said a moment ago. Our actions either reinforce the old karmic patterns or literally can change them for the future and their results. Any questions? And you too. That's, I'm sorry, that's a Sicilian coming out. <laughs> um, in this formula, the, we call it the condition self, interferes in, it seems to me, in, in knowing what direction to take it. Um, It's, it's hard to know what direction to go because you're so, there's such conditioning and it's so confusing. So could you address that? Expand a little more, I'm not clear. You're, you're trying to create a context. But the, the entity that's creating that context is to a big extent determined by your conditioning. Mm -hmm. So how do you create a context when your conditioning is at odds with that intention. Yeah. Uh, conditioning is the cause. So again, as I've been saying so far, 
We need to change the cause. So the Buddha was asked that question in a different way, but it was the same question. You know, a gentleman asked him one day, summarize what Buddhism is. He said, it comes down to this. When you discover, and I'm going to put it in the language that you just used, when you realize that the conditioning you've been operating from regularly reinforces harmful and suffering effects, stop it. When you realize what causes loving kindness, compassion, and happiness in your life, do it. That's how you change it. It's complex. You know, Einstein also said, the mind which created the problem will be insufficient for discovering the solution. So when I'm coming from the point of view that my conditioning is the only knowledge available to me of myself, that kind of like I've learned everything there is for me to learn about me, which is a real adult disease. You know, we grow up and we get to a point and we think, I've learned everything now there is about me. We get stuck in that, if you will, point of view that I can't change my condition. But we can change our condition. So again, part of the training in Zen, Master Dogen said, involves this study of that condition. So when he says Zen is the study of the self, he's talking about that self, that conditional self. So again, back to the Buddha's words. By inquiring into my condition, my habitual behaviors that I continue to do in my life and which continually produce the same dissatisfying results, okay? Dogen goes on to say, how do we study the self? He says, we forget it, which means we drop those behaviors. We stop. We drop behaving in those habitual ways that we know do not work. Unconditional. Now again, back to what Einstein said. The mind that is filled with that conditioning, as I tell my students, the ego will go down fighting. Okay? So we don't want to let go of our conditioning. You know? Jefferson suggested we love the suffering because the work involved of letting go of the causes of those suffering takes a little more time than we would prefer. Okay? So again, Zen is the study of my conditioning and how that conditioning has resulted in peculiar effects all my life. And so here we are confronted with the law of cause and effect. That is never going to change. As long as I continue to think, speak, and act in those ways, those results will always surface. You're going to get the same results. So again, what is often difficult for most people really is simple when you listen to it. Stop it, the Buddha said. Stop doing that, okay? So it's not about the, when, when, I, when I hear the word direction, Len, here's what I hear. Again, what is my intention here, all right? So, you know, when I counsel people uh, about this very issue, a lot of people don't want to give up their conditioning because they don't want to inconvenience other people's comfort. I'll put it that way, okay? Because we're so hooked into placating people's ignorance, okay? And so, again, it really comes down to how bad do you want it? 
You know, when I talk about, when people say to me they don't have time to meditate, I say to them, that's nonsense. You've got 24 hours, I've got 24 hours. I've not been given 25 hours. I've got 24 hours, you've got 24 hours. What we often so easily call lack of time really is a matter of priority. Really is a matter of priority. So again, when we really want change bad enough, the Buddha said, as difficult as people think it is, it really comes down to stop doing the stuff that's harmful and do the stuff that isn't. End of story. Really. Because, and again, here's where I think we get psychologically stuck in this. It's not about you. I'm not talking about you. You are Buddha. You are wondrous potential. You are loving kindness and compassion. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about your behavior and your ignorance of how that behavior causes things that if I sat you down and I showed it to you and asked you, do you really want that effect to keep showing up in your life, you, you would, you know, unless, unless we're talking about some pathology here, you would obviously say, of course not. Nobody wants to suffer, you saying. So what I think gets people stuck in the notion of making changes in their life is that, is that idea that we're talking about you. I'm not talking about you. The Buddha was not talking about you. Jesus was not talking about you. The prophets were not talking about you. When you look at their words and you look at how they delivered those teachings, it was about changing your behavior. Because they knew about the laws of cause and effect. Even the holiest person on earth, the holiest person on the earth, pick wherever that is for you, if they were to commit causes that result in harm, would have a life filled of harm. So it's not about you, it's about wisdom, having the wisdom and knowledge that you can be the most wonderful person in the world, and that is what you are. You are a Buddha. You are Christ, whatever works for you. You are a child of God, whatever metaphor you want to use. Absolutely. But when the Buddha says, you know, when the Buddha is asked, what is the cause of our suffering? He says, it's ignorance. <coughs> you act ignorantly. You ignore a fundamental law that existed long before you did. And unfortunately, God's not interested in changing it for you. <laughs> saying? The law of cause and effect is about behavior. We are talking about adopting skillful ways to navigate through life with at least the minimal amount of suffering. There will never be a time in your life, my life, there wasn't a time in Buddha or Jesus or anyone else's life where there was absolutely no suffering. So the Buddha said, do the least harm because we can't avoid it altogether. And the way to do the least harm is to understand, again, what behaviors, which are the causes, we continue to behave in that cause ourselves and others suffering. Okay? Anyone else?
Hello again. Good to see you again. Um, so you, you're saying that folks uh, operate from a place of pain and suffering, and that's our behavior. And just ceasing that behavior can, can lessen that, that pain and suffering. But if we're comfortable in living in that space and fearful of, of a change, what's that way to break through that fear and, and eliminate that fear to live in that place? Well, again, there, there's no possibility there if we're comfortable in it and we're satisfied with it. You know, it's like the story I tell about, I gave a talk uh, about 12 years ago in an addiction center. And, and I was talking about, again, the possibility of being content no matter the circumstance or situation, okay? And the young girl raised her hand and she said, you know, I work at a job I hate through and through. My boss is a real a-hole. The people I work with are disgusting. They don't listen. They don't work fast enough. They don't this. What can I do to feel better? And I said, nothing, okay? Except maybe leave that job, you know? But that won't even work because it was about, again, that individual's point of view of the environment. So again, if a person is content with their suffering, they don't need to be hearing this. But I doubt that anybody's content with suffering. Is that helpful? This is a good change in the point of view. Pardon me? Change the point of view. Right, but we want to, we, we, we need, we begin by wanting to change it. If I don't want to change it, there's, why would I even bother trying to convince you? you see? So again, it's all about how bad do I want this? How bad do you want it? And uh, some people I agree with you would rather stay in their suffering. We like the suffering. What would we talk about? <laughs> right? Think about it. What would we talk about? I tell a story when I first started teaching this many years ago and developed my very first weekend seminar on it um, during the course of the seminar because it was a 24-hour seminar. We literally uh, went through the night and so forth and until it was time to not go any further. <coughs> and as we would get into the late hours, one of the processes I used to do would be a meditation process, and we're going to do some of that here in a few moments. Um, and one of the meditations had to do with uh, relieving pain in the body. So everybody was obviously tired and exhausted and feeling uncomfortable in their seat. So I would take them through this guided sem uh, meditation process. And so in, at a certain point of the process, the pain disappears. So uh, one of the uh, participants brought her uh, 60, I think she was 69 or 70 year old mother with her. And she was Italian and she had done my seminar before and she came up to me early before we began and said, when you do that work, would you pick my mother or allow my mother to come up and be the person you do it with? Uh, she's just always been stuck in her suffering and it's killing the family and everybody. And if you can help us, that'd be great. So she came up at that time, and I used her as the uh, person to demonstrate the uh, meditation. And she was sitting in an armchair, and her arms and hands were holding onto the arms, and she was sitting there. And as we got closer and closer to that moment of the process, where the pain disappears, I watched her grip the chair, the arms on the chair. She literally gripped them, the, her hands turned red and pink, and what have you. And she jumped up with both fists in my face and said, you can't have my suffering. It's all I've got. 
later on when I counseled the family about it, I said, this is how your mother gets you to come home. You need to understand that that's what she's doing. Go home more often and watch what happens. You don't need me to help her. And he, you don't need to show hands, but I would say, show her hands. Anybody got a mother like that? <laughs> okay. Anyone else? So we'll take a short break, just enough to give you an opportunity to stand up and shake it off. And I'm going to tell you a few other things, and we're going to do a meditation process to help you begin to manifest this wisdom in your daily living. So if you want to stand up, you can. If you want to stretch, you can. So the foundation to apply these teachings is found in our clarity and understanding of, again, what we are talking about. The law of karma is a natural law inherent in the nature of things like the law of physics. It is not operated by a god and indeed, the gods are themselves under its sway. Good and bad rebirths are not therefore seen as rewards and punishments, but as simply the natural results of certain kinds of action. Karma is not a system of rewards and punishments meted out by God, but a kind of natural law akin to the law of gravity. Individuals are thus the sole authors of their good and bad fortune. So again, the ground for the foundation or the context of the application that I'm going to teach you in a moment is in an understanding that these are skillful means by which we participate in a law of the universe. It is not a Buddhist philosophy. It is not a belief. So it's kind of like I tell people, the Dharma is not dependent upon my agreement. It's not dependent upon my belief. Like the law of gravity, whether I believe in it or not, if I mess with gravity, it'll knock me on my butt every time. So we are talking about how to function in a universe that I often also say to my Christian brothers and sisters, God created to work. And you've been trying to fix her mistakes ever since. So this universe we exist in, this life we occupy, is by design designed to be fulfilling and satisfying. That the ground of our existence is not, the ground of our existence is not the lack that our ego delusion has convinced us, but the ground of our existence is at all times abundance. So, at every moment, at every given time, it's not that we lack the possibility for happiness and well-being and contentment. It's that whatever it is we are doing in that moment, our behavior prevents us from experiencing that happiness and well-being. 
happiness, love, joy, peace of mind pervades the whole universe. It is the natural state of the universe. Revealing right here, right now. So if you're listening, listen to again the Dharani in which I opened the Dharma, I say this Dharma, incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds of thousands of millions of eons. Not because it is hidden from us, not because it only exists here or there, but because our conditioning, our point of view, which is part of our conditioning, our goals and objectives, our intentions and purposes, do not permit us from accessing it, if you will. We'll use that term, from accessing it. So how do we begin to literally change the conditioning, alter the conditioning that prevents us from experiencing the good effects of good karma? And one of the techniques central to Zen spirituality or living a Zen-inspired life is the practice or the use of the training in meditation or particularly samadhi meditation. By samadhi we mean the meditation of the Buddha. And the meditation of the Buddha was a concentrated form of meditation. It had a specific intention, a specific purpose. So just as the surgeon about to commit surgery on a particular part of the human anatomy is trained in that particular process of surgery to commit that particular result, our meditation is that precise. It is a precision meditation with a clear intention. When we sit to do this meditation that I'm going to demonstrate and give you an opportunity to experience, and then it's up to you to take it home and apply it, we have a clear intention, a precise purpose in the meditation. And that intention or purpose is, may I and all beings everywhere be free of sorrow and suffering and the causes of sorrow and suffering. Throughout the process that I will demonstrate in a moment and take you through, that is the ground for this kind of meditative prayer, if you will. This reestablishing a new intention for the future. Whatever my intention may be in the past for my life, my intention from this moment going forward is to eliminate the causes of suffering, both for myself and others is to eliminate suffering and its causes in whatever shape or form that may be. In my discontentment, in my anxiety, in my stress, in my you know, anger, whatever form my dissatisfaction or discontentment is taking. The purpose of my life going forward is to function as the cause for, that, for the cessation from that suffering the cause for the cessation from that suffering. Step one, without which none of this works. Own your life and the results you want in your life. Right view involves what 
a word that is often again misrepresented and misinterpreted. Right view and the power that right view or right intention has in our lives begins with responsibility. Responsibility is not blame, shame, guilt, or fault. Responsibility is a position I take whereby I claim full authority for the results in my life. Whereby I claim the authority to be the cause for the effects I want in my life. Wrong view is that view that we have been conditioned to believe in. That it is the external stuff the content of our life that literally holds the power for our happiness. So we go through life filling ourselves up with all forms of content, expecting that that content is what will make me happy. The shift required to change my life is from, again, the content of my life to the context. What is the context for my life? Me. I am the cause for my dissatisfaction, and I alone am the solution for my dissatisfaction. This is not a denial that external stimuli inform me, but what it is is a rejection that I don't have the power to know contentment and satisfaction no matter the circumstance and situation. Um, it's important that you hear what I just said. The shift that is necessary, whether you understand it or not, whether you believe it or not, is a kind of attitude you take from this moment on that no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, my experience is my cause. I am causing that. And if I am causing that, I can change that experience. It doesn't require your belief. It doesn't require your agreement. It requires you to just simply use the instrument, use the technique, and the results will follow. So first, I own my life. I reclaim it. My happiness and well-being is not dependent upon any external circumstance or situation to be this way or that way. My happiness and well-being is a function of my internal state, and that state I alone have authority. Another way that I often say this is, who I am going to be in the world, I have no power over the rest of you. I have no power over <coughs> anyone else in my life. I have no power with what happens with other people in the world and the circumstances and situation. The only power I have is here. This is where my power lies. And if I can harness that power responsibly, miracles will follow. Miracles will come. Change follows. Because what is always preventing, and you need to see this. Don't trust me on this. See it. As long, and I've used this example for 40 years, as long Close. As long as my point of view, which is the context, which is a contextual 
force <coughs> that is shaping and forming my experience from moment to moment. And you need to see this. As long as the place I am operating from is that the source of my happiness is in you and how you are behaving and how you are acting and how you are relating to me, what do I get to do in my life? It's all I get to do in my life. Anyone? Leave someone else. That's what I do, but what do I get to do? I suffer. That's the results, but what do I get to do? Not be responsible. What I get to do is wait, and nothing else. Because as long as you are the source of my happiness, I've got to wait for you to behave. And I've got news for you. I'm not changing. You're saying? So if you think I'm the source of your happiness, you get to wait. And I got news for you. I'm not changing because you know what? I'm waiting for you to change. And that's why the whole world feels like it's stuck. Because it is. And we're stuck because we keep relinquishing our authority to make any real difference in our life to the content of our life. The real power, the power that God knows, and they wrote about this. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Boom. Cause, let there be light. Boom. Effect, light. In the beginning was the word. Boom. Boom. So, when I choose, whether I understand it, whether I can you know, believe it or not, to be responsible for the results I want in my life and to be the cause of my life's experience, then there are possibilities. Until then, there are none. Because I cannot control the external circumstances and situations of my life. But I can control, I can create my reaction or response to those circumstances and situations. When I know the causes that create the results I want, I apply those causes. So, there's a sweep cause, a sweep cause, a blanket cause, we talk about in Buddhism. And that is where, again, I train myself, because as Len said earlier, so accurately, we're up against our conditioning. And our conditioning is our, again, our conditioning is not who we are. If some of you are still having problems with this, it's because you haven't heard what I said. This is not about you. It's about the behavior you take for granted that keeps resulting in the same results. So we're up against our conditioning, and our conditioning is nothing more than learned reactions to life, learned responses to life. And if I learned those reactions, I can relearn them at any given time. So in meditation, in real meditation, not the kind that is so often mistaken as meditation in our society these days, 
in the work of the Buddha, this concentrated samadhi meditation was about training the mind not to react to whatever showed up in the meditation from our conditioning. So, take a moment to consider what is your immediate reaction to any kind of opposition that shows up in your life, in whatever way it does. Could be someone's way of talking and it gets you upset. What is it? What is your immediate reaction? Psychology or psychologists uh, put it into one of three categories: <coughs> fight, flight, or paralyze, freeze. Fight, flight, or freeze. So. When opposition shows up in our life, we're either taking it on and resisting it, we're either fearful of it and running from it, or we find ourselves paralyzed and we don't know what to do. That is our learned reaction. Early on in our life as children, we learned to react to all of the future circumstances and situations in our life by one of those three reactions. fight flight or paralyze or freeze. We feel stuck. We don't know what to do. We feel incapable. You need to know where you fall in that. You need to know what your learned reaction is. Because that reaction manifests itself in subtle ways and profound ways whenever we feel discontented. So, for example, when you're meditating, one of the things that you're doing is observing your reaction to maybe the discomfort in your body that comes from sitting and meditating for long hours. Because we react to that the same way we react to an oppositional personality in our life or other oppositional circumstances or situations. We're, if you want to know you know, the answer to that question, how I react, you need to know I react universally. So I react to the small dis disappointments in life the same way I react to the big ones. And my reaction is either fight, flight, or paralyze, freeze, one or the other. In meditation, we train to notice that present and to transform that in the meditation pra uh, process that I will de demonstrate in a moment. So, once you've owned responsibility, unconditional, declared yourself as the solution for your discontentment, you then begin to apply the technique to start the changes. And the technique, again, is a daily meditative process whereby you hold the pain and suffering in your life differently than fight, flight, or paralyzation. So I'm going to ask you to kind of like sit up in your seats, put both feet on the floor the best you can. Try to get comfortable. Put down your pen, paper, and anything else that you might have in your hand. Put your hands on your lap. Close your eyes. And all I'm going to ask you to do right now is to just sit there kind of like observing your experience. 
And one of the things I'm also going to ask you to do is to recite a Dharani quietly to yourself. We're going to begin with that Dharani as we develop this process. So just take a moment to settle down. No need to be thinking. Just simply observe sitting there Nowhere to go, nothing to do, just sitting. And kind of like something caught your attention, sit up in your seat and take a deep breath as you do and hold it, release, relax, take a deep breath and hold it, release, relax, take a deep breath and hold it, Release, relax. Breathe normally, but with an awareness of releasing and relaxing with each exhalation. Kind of like just taking a moment to let it all go, drop wherever it will, nothing to do with it no one to be with it. I'm going to recite a Dharani, and I'm going to recite it slowly to give you a time to recite it quietly to yourself. So in your mind, quietly repeat after me. All the evil karma ever created by me since of old, because of my beginningless greed, resentment, and ignorance, born of my actions, my speech, and my intentions, I now confess and purify them all. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Repeat after me. All the evil karma ever created by me since of old because of my beginningless greed, resentment, and ignorance, born of my actions, my speech, and my intentions, I now confess and purify them all. Take a deep breath and hold it.
exhale, release, and relax. Continue to breathe quietly, keeping your mind's attention in the space you occupy. Recall a moment in your life you regret your behavior and perhaps feel guilty about or shameful. Recall it in a way that you see it and experience it in your body and stay with it but do nothing with it. And with that recollection present to you now, take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. All the evil karma ever created by me since of old, cause of my beginningless greed, resentment, and ignorance, born of my actions, my speech, and my intentions. I now confess and purify them all. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale, release, and relax. Continue to recall that experience. And with your mind's eye, imagine just sitting with it, not thinking about it, not analyzing it, not assessing it, just simply observing it as if it is someone sitting directly in front of you. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale. Release. Relax. Continue to recollect that moment, that experience, again as if it is someone sitting in front of you with your eyes closed, aware of your breath, aware of that event, and smile. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale. Release. Relax. And smile.
You don't smile enough. And most of the times we smile because something causes us to smile. You take a look at the statue of the fellow behind me. I recall the first day I noticed that he was smiling. It was subtle, but there clearly was a smile there. And most teachers never really talk about this, but it's there purposely, designed in the, particularly Mayana school of the statues of the Buddha. And the smile on the statues represent, again, this non-action position. So the story of the Buddha's enlightenment was that prior to that moment he woke up, which is what the word Buddha means, and became known as the historical Buddha, the devil or Mara, whatever metaphor works for you, threw all kinds of stuff at him to tempt him to give up his efforts to wake up and be enlightened. And some of it was really <coughs> bad, evil stuff, scary stuff, threw the worst stuff possible at him to try to shake him. And he didn't do anything about it. He didn't talk back to Mara. He didn't explain it in his mind. He just simply sat there and held each of those experiences in the bosom of his mind and smiled. So the process is about holding those painful experiences in your life and this time doing nothing with them. Our conditioning is to do something. Our conditioning is to react, either through fight or flight or this kind of paralyzation. This time, it is a passive, uh, a passive progressive position we take, whereby we can hold the disappointments in our life, we can hold those painful behaviors of ours we've committed in the past, and purify that karma by just simply acknowledging them. The Durrani is a universal Zen Durrani used in monasteries everywhere during the liturgy. And the words are simple. And the last part of those words show how simple they are because we firmly believe the result of that Durrani is, I confess and purify them all. All karma is purified by simply acknowledging it and holding it. Why and how does that work? Again, it is not about you. It is about your behavior. Your Buddha nature never changes. You don't fall out of grace. No matter how wrong you do it your entire life, it never changes. You just get, unfortunately for most people, stupider and stupider and keep doing more stupid things. So it's always about our behavior. It's not about who we are. It's about our behavior. And again, most, if not all, of our behavior at some point in our life, when we take a moment to stop, identify it, and look at it, is conditional. We learned it that way. And again, the law of cause and effect doesn't care who you are. You could be the Dalai Lama, you can be the Pope, you can be the most evil serial killer on the planet. The law applies the same to you. If you commit causes, 
that are harmless and helpful and beneficial to yourself, the effects will function in parallel to those causes. It doesn't matter who you are. So it is non-discriminating. So what we want to do with those learned behaviors in meditation is to hold them equally. So in Zen meditation, there's a wonderful story about uh, Suzuki Roshi, the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, and probably one of the greatest Japanese masters to ever come to America. Uh, the, the, his students and he were practicing sashim, and it was Orohatsu sashim, which was a set, which is a seven-day long, 24-hour meditation practice. And, it, and at one point during sashim, you meet with your teacher privately in what's called dokusan, in a room apart from the meditation hall. And this one student of Suzuki's came in to him and said, you know, Roshi, I'm, I'm in a state of bliss, a utopic state. I have seen the lights of heaven and heard the sounds of the angels. And she's going on describing this experience. And Suzuki Roshi's response to her was, don't worry, that will pass. And the next student came in describing quite the opposite. And he said, Roshi, I feel like I'm in hell. I'm dying here. It's going crazy. And Suzuki said, don't worry, that will pass. Equanimity is an essential piece of this practice to hold both the joys and the disappointments in our life in equanimity, equally. So what we do, whether we're happy or sad, we smile. We smile. And we release control over those evil karmas of the past. And in the releasing them, acknowledging them, we're confessing. Releasing them, we purify them all. The past karma is relinquished, and now we substitute that karma with good karma, good behavior, loving behavior, compassionate behavior, and can begin to literally create our future different from the past if we commit to it through responsibility as I described it here tonight. Meditation is the means by which we wash away all karmic influence on the present moment. Now how do we do this when we're not sitting on the cushion every day taking time to train in this? Again, in a moment of discomfort or stress or anxiety, the mindfulness practice is to be aware of that stress and anxiety. To not apply some kind of analytic approach in dealing with it. So awareness is just awareness. I am aware that this moment I am unhappy. I'm aware that this moment I am feeling stressed. <coughs> and am I aware of the, where it is present in my body? And I, again, using the breath, I breathe in deeply as a way of kind of like pulling that discomfort to me as if I'm holding it, like a mother might hold a baby. And then as I exhale, I'm releasing, again, my grip on that and just allowing it to drop away and coming back to whatever it is I'm doing at the moment. This technique is trained in the workplace. Again, when I find myself at the computer, stressed and anxious, I stop and I apply this technique, go back to the work I am doing, and keep my mind present to that. When I'm distracted by happy thoughts and joyful thoughts, the same thing. 
I want to be present to what I'm doing in the workplace, obviously, so that I can complete the work and complete it with the quality of my attention. So holding all circumstances and situations in equanimity requires you to give up a very Western, faith-based idea that you are what this is about. No, it's about your behavior. It's about your behavior. You are Buddha. Your behavior is what's preventing you from knowing that. Change your behavior, change the results. Change the results, peace on earth. Any questions? Is that a question? Were you ever in the military? <laughs> no, I was in a convict. Oh, well, there you <laughs> Same go. difference. Same thing. <laughs> um, you're talking about the smile. Um, a while back, I was very aware that I'm a very closed person, closed, on guard all the time, away from. And uh, <laughs> so you're in the third category. Just paralyze and protect yourself. Okay. So, and uh, I started to experiment with uh, a smile. And the smile was uh, to give that smile to complete strangers as I was passing by. Just smile and see what would happen. I had a lot of smiles back. And that began to open myself into another realm of behaviors from the closed to slowly like budding open and then the smile was accompanied by have a good day or good morning so those behaviors uh, even simple as they may sound were very meaningful for me because I really feel that they opened up the door to um, giving in my heart the love that I give from my heart and to receive the love that others show me. So giving and receiving. And I thought it was very relevant when you did the uh, beautiful meditation. And I thank you. So in this meditation, the smile begins with giving it to yourself. There's a short way I can say what I'm really trying to get at when I talk about the use of the smile. It's like, lighten up and give yourself a break. We all are people of error. And we've learned that error. My father, as part of his uh, legacy wants to leave an opportunity for my daughter, which she did, to get the best education she can. And so uh, uh, he's arranged for her to go to Morristown Friends. She's in first grade there now. And um, <clears throat> one of the uh, impressions, uh, positive impressions I had the other night when I was there for what they call back to school night, and when we went there the first day for Katie to go, and they had the assembly, was they began 
talking about the aim and objective of learning at this school by emphasizing make all the mistakes you possibly can. Failure is part of the process. Lighten up. I, I'm saying that. They didn't say that. But lighten up. Give it a break. And that's what this is. We break up the grip and the stagnation that grip creates on our past karma and release ourselves so that we can responsibly and with wisdom begin to create better karma for the future. Any other questions? Well, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so as always, thank you for coming out tonight. Thank you for choosing to be here with me. It is always a gift to see you here. And it is also always a privilege to be with you. Thank you. of impermanence, gone, gone, forever gone. Opportunity is too often lost. Do not squander your life. a safe journey. I see a safe return. Good night. Good night. There are refreshments in the other room. Fatten up. <laughs>